So we're back in the book of Revelation this morning. We're still in chapter 2. So if you're just joining us this morning, we've been, uh, we're in the fifth week of a series through the book of Revelation. And uh, so far it's been fun, at least for me. Um, my mom is grinning, so if I'm happy and my mom is happy, I don't really care what, who else is not happy. Uh, so, just being honest, all right? Um, I care about some of you. All right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm starting off terribly this morning. All right. I've been off, you know, I was in Cancun last week, and so I'm probably a little more free than I should be this morning. Uh, okay, so... Here's the thing with Revelation. This section we're in is, is kind of a whole unit, okay? And even though I'm doing separate sermons on each one, it's really one unit, one idea. And it begins with this vision of Jesus, if you'll recall, of where John uh, sees Jesus and he's, he's different than how John remembered him, okay? He, he's got bright, white, flowing hair, and his eyes are flames, and his, out of his mouth is this double-edged, sharp sword sticking out. And when he speaks, it's like John describes it like uh, the roaring waters, rushing waters, like a giant waterfall or a river, and that, that rumbling, intimidating sound that it makes. And his feet are burnished bronze, which is a picture of moral excellence, purity, no, no mixture, no... no no compromise, right? And so this is how he sees Jesus. And then he sees this Jesus, right? John falls on his face as though dead. Jesus comes over, puts his hand on his shoulder, which would, in my mind would be the last thing you wanted Jesus to do in that moment, is come closer, right? He's just scary. Um, and he comes, and what he says is, don't be afraid. And he, he says, I'm going to show you some things. I want you to write them down and give them to these people. That's us, Okay? And the first thing he sees is he sees Jesus walking among some seven lampstands. And that represents the church. And he goes to each one and he, he, he says nice things. And for most of them, he says some negative things. Ephesus gets kind of the worst threat, which is if you don't straighten up, I'm actually going to remove my presence from you. Okay? And so we've gone going through each church, and these are, we can see these as types. They are actual, literal local churches. But the way we can apply that to ourselves now, because otherwise you just say, well, that has nothing to do with me. That was some other church. We don't have that problem. We do. <laughs> we have all of these problems. These are seven types of temptations, okay, that churches face um, all throughout history. And this morning is no different. The church in Pergamum, okay? And so we're kind of looking at these symbolically. They are literal places. We're not, we're not denying that. We're saying, okay, the way we apply this to ourselves is, you know, we, we can identify with these temptations, all right? So this morning is chapter 2, Revelation 2, verses 12 to 13 to start with. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus is just referencing back to the vision of himself at the beginning saying, I'm that guy. The guy with the sword out of his mouth is the one saying this. I am the judge and what I say is to be obeyed, right? That's what that's a picture of. He says, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he calls Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, the place where Satan's throne is. I don't want that said about my town, right? This is very fascinating. And in this city, there's been at least one martyr in their church, okay? So let me give you a little bit of background about Pergamum, and then we'll talk about that fact. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple for emperor worship. We've talked about emperor worship a little bit already, where uh, Rome demanded that their citizens and those that they conquered literally worship the emperor as a god, okay? This is not just a figurative, metaphorical thing. It was they, they wanted everybody in Rome, which was the known world, basically, at the time, to worship the emperor. So try to, try to picture this and imagine what this would have been like. Imagine in the United States if we were required under threat of death or imprisonment to literally offer sacrifices and bow down and worship the president. That would be insane. And the effect that would have on how you feel about where you live and what it means to be a Christian in that environment. There are places in the world right now where that happens, okay? It was also a major center for the cult of Asclepius, the god of healing, uh, symbolized as a serpent. You've probably seen that imagery. It's been carried over into uh, as a medical uh, symbol. That little serpent, that goes back to Greek mythology, all right? Also behind Pergamum was a cone-shaped hill that housed several pagan temples with one temple in the shape of the throne of Zeus. So it would make sense that Jesus would use a throne, the throne of Satan, as his description of Pergamum. Not only were Christians expected to pay homage to Caesar by worshiping him, they were also expected to worship these local gods. Often when Christians were brought before Rome under charges of not honoring Caesar by their Jewish neighbors, it was because they were refusing to honor and worship these local gods and the locals were offended. And that sort of started this process. All right, so your, your, your local town or city like this would have their preferred gods that they had always kind of worshipped. And when you refused to worship those guys, they would get mad and then they would eventually find yourself standing before Roman officials under charges, and the char Rome didn't care if you wor didn't worship their local colloquial little gods. What they cared about was the emperor. And the way you really got in trouble was get being brought before Rome under those charges. This was happening a lot. It's probably what happened to this first martyr. More than likely, that's what happened. So all of this adds up to help us understand why Jesus would say that Pergamum was a place of great demonic authority. It was a center for pagan worship, both of local gods and also of Caesar himself, all right? So to live in Pergamum would have, as a Christian and to not participate in that kind of worship would have been really costly, quite possibly costing you your freedom, being thrown in prison, and maybe even death. It's a different world than what we live in, isn't it? Just the fact that we can stand here, I have... I am not the least bit afraid of some guy with a gun coming in here and a badge saying, you have to, you can't do this. 
if you continue to meet here, we'll throw you in prison. But there are places all over the world where that is happening, and it was happening here. So, even though this is, Jesus himself calls this a, the, the throne of Satan, meaning he has authority. A throne is a picture of authority. Even though that is true, don't get all twisted up over it because Jesus is the one who's the judge, right? Jesus is the one with the sword out of his mouth, right? Not Satan. Jesus stands in judgment over that authority as the one who wields that two-edged sword from his mouth. Jesus is not only the final and ultimate judge over the church, which we've been talking about as he kind of walks through these different churches as a judge and as a priest, he is also the judge of the universe. That's a whole different thing. So he's not just interacting with you and I. He's not just, just, just rebuking the church and saying, hey, get your act together, which is how we tend to think of him. He is standing in judgment over the entire world. There is nothing he does not judge, okay? Not one thing. Every sin, every government, Every ruler, every single person and act, he is judge over. That's Jesus. He is the ultimate judge. And he says to Pergamum, a nice compliment, which he, this is his pattern, which I like. I like getting the compliment first. And it's a good pattern for you to follow, by the way. There's wisdom in that. If you're going to go say something negative to somebody, think of a real, genuine, positive thing to say first. All right? This is what Jesus does. What does he say? He says, you've hold, held fast to my name. Despite being in Satan's backyard, they have stood against the persecution and have not denied the faith. That is amazing. If you consider how hard that would have been. It's not easy to do that when all the pressure is against you. Even in the face of the martyrdom of one of their members, they have refused to deny the faith. I, I don't even, I can't imagine what that would be like. Just sitting out there yesterday at the fall festival and looking around and seeing everybody, it's like this big happy family. And by the way, I really appreciate, especially those of you who brought people with you. That was, that's a cool thing. That's why we're doing it. But to sit there and like think, wow, I just love these people. I mean, did you feel that at some point? Like, I just love, I love this, these people. And then to imagine, try to conceive of what it would be like for us as a community, for one of you to be killed because you would not deny the faith. What that would feel like for us. It would feel great for the one who did it. Because you'd be in heaven with Jesus and he'd be slapping you on the back going, nice job. It would feel great. For the rest of us, what would that be like? To come to church the next week and there's that empty seat. Because we, we, we all know we sit in the same seat every week, right? Is that, except for Gail and Charlie. I'm really confused. You're over here now. I'm just all messed up. I got, I'm gone for a week and everything goes haywire. But... But try to I don't, just imagine what that would be like the next week when you come to worship and that person is not there because they're dead for their faith. What that would do, it would embolden you, I think, on one level. On another level, it would be uh, really scary. 
because you realize what the stakes are at that point, right? You realize what it means for you to just stand there and sing or to even come together at all, what the possibilities are. This is no longer like, I imagine there were some people who didn't show up the next week, just sort of didn't come anymore because it wasn't, the cost was too high. And suddenly what it meant to be a Christian was very, very, very clear, right? And how important, it wasn't just a club anymore. It wasn't just a place to hang out where you can find friends or people like you or find community. It was, wow, this is real. So I imagine there were some people that just sort of fell off. Well, I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's where I draw the line. So I imagine this was really um, a shaping experience when one of them was killed. It's important, I think, to pause and acknowledge, one, in honor of Antipas. Thanks, buddy, right? But I also want to say that I think it's important for you to settle this issue in your heart. I know as Americans, the idea of being killed for your faith is about as far removed from your experience as it can be. It's not something probably any of us lay awake at night thinking about. I hope tomorrow I'm not killed for my faith, right? However, would you be willing to? This is important because it, just like with those church members who came and worshiped together after that martyrdom happened. And they realize how high the stakes were, that this is important, this is real, Jesus is real, the stakes are high, and it's worth it. It's worth even death. I would die for this. I would die for the name of Christ, not for my own reputation, not for my own name, but for the name of Jesus, I will die. That's what it meant to walk through the doors and gather together and worship. It was a statement to say, it's worth even that. That's how real this is. And you need to settle this in your heart. Of course, the answer should be yes. Is, Jesus, is the name of Jesus worth dying for? Of course it is. Is losing your life a price you're willing to pay in order to preserve the sanctity of your worship? I will not worship another. I will worship only Christ. You need to settle it. The stakes are that high, even if you are never, you're never faced with the reality of it. Because what follows from that decision is a submission of your life. What you're saying is, all of my life belongs to Jesus, even my breath, even my heartbeat. I don't get to decide how I die, when I die, or how I live, where I live, what I live for. He defines all of it. That's what it means to settle that issue, right? He is your Lord, come what may. This is the issue that is confronted in martyrdom. Not just your own martyrdom, when you've got the gun to your head, but when your friend has a gun to their head. Would I say yes or no to that? Would I worship another, or would I say I'll worship only Jesus? If his name is worth dying for, then it's also worth living for. If the nature of your death belongs to him, then the nature of your life belongs to him too. I remember a long time ago, I've been thinking about this in my own life. I, don't, I must have been 12 or 13 years old. I was at some, our family was at some like churchy conferency thing. 
down in Fayetteville. The memory of why we were there is vague. When you're a pastor's kid, you just sort of go wherever. You're just in constantly in meetings, and you just don't know what they're about. You're just there, right? And uh, so that's one of those. And I was not sit, sitting with my, my parents. And um, during worship, my dad comes over, taps me on the shoulder, and just whispers into my ear and says, it's time for you to decide once and for all who you belong to. And then he walks away. Classic. Michael Cotton. <laughs> Drive by like, and I'm like, <laughs> looking around, you know, what? Uh, I thought I was okay. Now I don't know. Um, but I, I knew he was right in that moment. It was really the timing and everything was just right. You never know what you say to people and what it, if it lands or not, right? But it landed, and I knew there was some, in some way I needed to settle this issue. Who do, who do I belong to, really? And is this going to be a forever lifelong thing or just the religion that I grew up in? right? And I just decided. It wasn't really me. I know that. God gave me the faith to just say, yeah, okay, I'm in. I'm in forever, for life. No matter where it takes me, I'm in. And that, that deep down knower part of your heart that you, you really can't touch got switched. And there have been moments after that in my life where I was determined to say, God, I'm not following you. I told him, I'm done with you. This is too, too much. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I'm out. And it's like he just laughed at me. <laughs> Whatever. You, you, I, I know what's in your heart. And you can be mad at me all you want to. You can shake your fist at me and you can say, I'm out. I'm walking away. And you're just lying to me and lying to yourself. I don't believe you. And he was right obviously, because that thing in my heart got switched. And I've, I've, as I was reading this this week, I just felt like God told me that some of you need to have that moment where you settle this issue forever. My life belongs to him, not just how I die, but every single thing about me, who I am, what I say about myself, my name. We're going to talk about our name in just a minute. The, my, my actual name, my identity, who I am, how I think, what I believe, what I don't believe, where I go, where I work, where I live, how I spend my money, if I have kids or not have kids, how many kids I have, all of it, and whether or not they're healthy or not healthy kids, whether I'm healthy or not healthy, all of it, all of it belongs to him. There is nothing about me and my life that I get to decide for myself, all of it belongs to him, and if he wants to kill me for his name's sake, so be it. He's not wrong. That issue has got to get settled, and it's got to get settled today, not tomorrow, not later. Well, I'll work on it. No, decide today, okay? All right. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Oh. I knew you were, I knew you were just buttering me up. He's not just buttering up. That's a real compliment. He's saying, good job. You, 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 you died for me. Okay? 
It's not a small thing. But he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've talked about them already. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Not good. So let's talk about Balaam for a minute. Because at the time of this writing, whether you think Revelation was written in 8070 or 8090 or somewhere in between, Balaam is long dead. Okay? Balaam is not physically, literally in the church in Pergamum. Okay? So we ought to go back and get the backstory of Balaam to understand what the point is. Balaam signifies something, okay? And we got to figure out what that is, all right? So Balaam's story can be found in Numbers 22, chapter 22 through 24. I'm not going to read that today. Um, you can go back and check it out. But Balaam was a wicked prophet. That's a unique category. Not a false prophet, which is fascinating. It's one to kind of think about when you're in the bathroom, right? <laughs> Just, what is, that's interesting. Why would God even allow that? Why is that even a thing? Because a wicked prophet is a prophet who actually does hear from God. God speaks to him. Legit. They are just not from Satan. It's from God. Okay, it's very clear when you read it. God is speaking to him. His words are from God, but he is a wicked man, and he is trying to, he's using his prophetic gift to try to do evil things. And you go, well, maybe if God would just not speak to him anymore, we wouldn't have this problem. I can't explain that to you, okay? It is an obvious question, and it's one that I also have, and I do not have an answer for you. Because I would just say, hey, simple answer, God, just stop talking to him, right? But God doesn't do that. A false prophet is someone who pretends to hear from God, gives false prophecies that are not true, that are not from God, or are from Satan, and we can go, that's a false prophet. This is a wicked prophet, which is fascinating. So Balaam is a wicked prophet. Uh, Balak is a Moabite king, enemy of Israel. He wanted to defeat Israel, so he tried to pay Balaam a lot of money to stand on a hill and curse Israel. He said, hey, Balaam, look, I'll give you a ton of money. You come over here, we're going to have this battle, and there's, there's the Israelite camp, and I want you to just use your prophetic authority to curse them, right? Fantastic idea if you're a Moabite king, right? Just pay the guy off. So Balaam told him, hey, I, that's a great idea. I would love to do that. Problem is, I got to ask God first. It's just, <laughs> Balaam, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, okay? Yeah, I'd love to. Sounds like great. I got to get God's permission, all right, Balaam, um, how is it that you've heard from God so much? You're an actual prophet, but you don't know God at all, right? You just don't know him. So Balaam asked God, and obviously God says, no, you can't do that. Israel's blessed. I've blessed Israel. I'm not going to curse them, and I won't allow you to do it. Balak sent a group of high officials. If Balaam says, no, I can't do it, sorry, he said no, right? Balak says, okay, I'm going to up the ante. He sends some, like, guys with like you know clout a team of 
high-dollar salesman, right? And he sends them to Balaam with even more money. He says, maybe, maybe we just need to you know, ask again and up the ante, all right? Balaam goes back to God, asks him again. God says, I'll let you go, but you have to say whatever I say. You can't say what you want to say. You can't be a false prophet. I'll let you go and speak, but you have to still say what I say, okay? Balaam goes, ah, I found a loophole. Balaam's, again, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? So he goes, and there's this crazy story that I just, I just love. It's just the coolest. It's got to be true, right? It's so crazy. So Balaam's going, and I think my theory is that Balaam is going, okay, I'm going to go, and I'm going to say whatever I want to say and, like, conveniently forget to ask God. Maybe this is a loophole for me. So on his way, riding his donkey to go to Balak to do the thing that he's being paid to do, an angel comes with a sword to stop him. Balaam, not the greatest prophet because he can't see the angel, but the donkey can't. Right? He can't, he's just like, why won't the donkey go? All of a sudden the donkey stops and refuses to move. And so he hit, beats the donkey and the donkey tries to go a different way around the angel. That The donkey's like, can you not see what I'm seeing? And, and Balaam's like, stupid donkey. And the donkey tries to go around and the angel moves and stops the donkey. This happens three times. Finally, God opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey rebukes Balaam. <laughs> Stop it, man. There's an angel. <laughs> right? Rebukes him. You idiot. Right? And then Balaam's eyes are open and he sees the angel. Oh, okay. And it was the angel say, angel said, I was about to kill you. That, ba- that donkey just saved your life. I was going to kill you right here where you stood. Until when that donkey spoke to you and you stopped, I I decided not to kill you. And he reminds him of what God told him. Do not say anything that God doesn't say. You can go, but you better not say anything that God does not tell you to say. Right? Then Balaam goes, okay, I probably should listen. Right? And he goes on. As the story goes, he goes to Balak, he goes up on the hill, he does some sacrifices to God, he asks God, what do I say? And what God gives him to say is a prophetic blessing over Israel. <laughs> so he kind of unwillingly, he's a wicked prophet, stands there and says, I imagine he mumbles at first, right? Like, right? And he prophesies blessing over Israel. Balak gets angry, he says, you better do it right. So he goes away, asks God. God gives him a second thing, and he comes back, and it's another prophetic blessing over Israel. One of, the third one's a messianic blessing. Prophesies the Messiah coming. I mean, he goes all out, full like Isaiah, right? And so he does this three times. All three times, it's a prophetic blessing, not a curse. And Balak says, I'm done. <laughs> You're just, this is the opposite of what I paid you for. He says, I'm not paying you, and he sends him away. Balaam wants his money, so he gets an idea. What I'll do, since God is messing up this whole thing, is I'll just tell Balak what he should do is get them to curse themselves. And the way you do that is you send in pagan Midianite temple prostitutes into the Israelite camp to tempt the men and if the men will bring them into their household, then God will be, God, they will bring a curse upon themselves and God will do for you what you're trying to do. And that's what Balak did. He sent in temple prostitutes into the camp. 
The men were like, hey, sweet. And they brought them into their homes. <clears throat> Not only did they sleep with them, but they worshiped with them, eating food sacrificed to these idols. These pagan Baal worshipers brought them in, and they participated in their worship, compromised their bodies, and compromised their worship. And the next morning, God killed 24,000 Israelite men. That's the story of Balaam. So this explains what Jesus meant in verses 14 to 15, right? Let's read that again. It says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans' teaching was similar, right? It was the idea that you can, you can, you can participate or even that you should participate in the local customs, the local pagan worship, the local thing, and just, just to get along, right, to survive. Maybe the Maybe I can imagine, because this is sort of the, maybe the modern American version of that, which is go be a witness from the inside. It's okay. You can, you can participate in that thing. You can do that thing. I know God's not real happy with it, but he'll make an exception because your, your heart's in the right place. You're trying to be a witness. It's okay. So the prophet Balaam has been dead for centuries at this point, but what he represented is alive and well in Pergamum. They are allowing pagan temptations into their camp and willingly unifying themselves to it. I think this is Satan's greatest ploy against the church, at least the modern Western church. Sexual immorality here, when really when used in Revelation anywhere, is never only about sex, okay? It's used symbolically to represent spiritual infidelity. It's not just about the physical act, the sin of sexual immorality, it's also pointing towards a spiritual infidelity. Remember Hosea and the, the prophet Hosea who married an unfaithful woman and that was a prophecy to the people that not just don't be unfaithful, but don't be unfaithful to God, right? Don't be spiritually unfaithful. It's allowing yourself to be seduced by the pleasures and false promises of the world, exchanging temporary peace or pleasure for the eternal reward of Christ himself. It is a ridiculous deal to make, but we make it all the time. Is the pursuit of happiness a basic human right? No, it's not how the world defines happiness. If you define happiness the way God defines it, that's a little different. We chase things that we are told will make us happy, like career, material things, children, spouses, security, entertainment, leisure, fitness, political superiority, sexual pleasure, even power over our own identity. That's the current big one, isn't it? Yeah. Who decides who I am? Many are good things. Marriage, children, those things are good things. You can't make a case against them. Right? They're good things that God has provided, but they're not ultimate things. They're not your reason for living. So we can even turn good things into idols. So why does any Christian participate in things that they know are ungodly? Why do we do this? 
You ever ask yourself that question? What's wrong with me? Jesus is clearly better. Why do we do that? Because it promises some form of happiness immediately. It's the same lie and deception that Eve fell into in the garden. Satan comes to her, and what's he say? He says, hey, look, God's holding out on you. He, he made you. He said, hey, here's all this great stuff. But he's just holding out on you. You could, if you wanted to, you could be like him. He's keeping the good stuff. That tree, he's holding out on you. That's the, that's the real tree. That's the best tree. He's keeping the best from you. All you have to do is eat it. Take it for yourself. Satan convinced Eve that God was not being good to her. We sang that song this morning, The Goodness of God. His restrictions were not for her good and that she needed to be responsible for her own happiness. That's my modern American twist. You're, you're responsible for your own happiness. You deserve it. You just need some me time, right? You just need some you time. Just you and just you just do whatever it is you want to do because you deserve it. It's not what Jesus ever says, is it? Jesus will not tolerate divided allegiances. He's kind of serious about it. <laughs> he wants all of your worship, all of it. Not just what's left over after you've been with the Midianite women all week, right? Whatever those Midianite women represent in your life. Where are all the idols hiding in your life? Is a great question. Because they like to hide. Where are they hide? What are they? What are the things that you live for other than Jesus? What are the things that you give honor and you bow down to and you let control you and define you and define what you are and how you live and what you do and what you care about and how you spend your money and how you, where you work, how hard you work, what your goals are, what your plans are. What determines for you how many kids you have? Because you might need to just have one or none. Maybe God doesn't want you to get married, and you really want to. Maybe he does, and you don't want to. <laughs> you see what I mean? What is it that controls those decisions in your life? That points towards what you're actually worshiping. If it's not Jesus... It's probably some sort of idolatry in your heart. And they love to hide under the guise of really good things. Don't act like you don't know because the Holy Spirit's been telling you. <laughs> if you're a Christian, there's stuff that he's been pointing at going, <clears throat> can we not do this anymore? Can, can you get rid of this, please? Um, this is too big. This is too big in your life. It's too big in your heart. It's too big of a thing. Dial it back, right? Dial it back. Put me in place of that. What are the things that you've been uniting yourself to that you know Jesus wants no part of? It's another way to put it. What do we do about it? We repent. Cast them out. Turn away from them. That's what repentance means. Now, I think we could leave that there and get very just feel bad about ourselves, right? 
If you just stop there, you feel terrible. I'm a worm. I'm an idolater. He's going to cut me in half with that sword out of his mouth any second. Can we just go back to that, the goodness of God song, right? Um, maybe we can do that at the end just to clean off, right? But, but it does this, Jesus doesn't stop there. There's this amazing promise that comes after that statement. After repent, don't follow Balaam. Don't follow the teaching of Balaam. Don't do it. Come out of the world. Stop compromising with the world. I'm glad you haven't denied the faith, but your, your worship has been compromised, right? Jesus says in verse 16 through 17, he says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's the hidden manna about? I'm not going to read it. You can go read it this week if you want. John 6, 48 to 58, Jesus makes it very clear that he is the manna from heaven. I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna. And he very clearly says that story of the manna appearing in the desert every day for the Israelites to eat and it wouldn't keep more than a day and all of that. God feeding his people directly, basically from his own hand, miraculously every day. He said, that was a prophecy about me. I'm that bread. I'm the bread of life. But the difference is, if you eat of me, you never get hungry again. That's the difference. So those who eat of him will never be hungry, meaning the hidden manna is Christ. If you worship him, if you're in him, if you follow him, if you belong to him, then you get him. That's the prize. It's pretty awesome. But wait, there's more. What's this white stone business? What's that all about? There are several possible meanings of that white stone, but all of them point to the same application. So I think it doesn't matter that much which one of these you choose. I'll give you the three, though. It's pretty interesting. One possibility is that high priests wore a breastplate with 12 stones in it. Each stone had the name of a tribe written on it. And the meaning of that was that as the priest went along his, about his duties in the temple, worshiping God, doing sacrifices for the sins of the people, the people were represented in, and he was standing in their place before God. On the Day of Atonement, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, and atones for the people's sins, he brings them with him on his chest. All right, that's one possible meaning. Second possibility is the, um, the Romans would award victorious athletes with a white stone with their name inscribed on it when they won a competition. And it served as a ticket to an awards banquet at the end of the competition. They have a big party, and they would bring their stone with their name on it saying, let me enter the party. Right? Third possibility is in Greece, juries voted by throwing either a white or a black stone on the ground. Black was guilty, white was acquittal. So if a person was judged not guilty, they'd throw their white stone. They were guilty, they'd throw the black one. Right? All of those, I think, are obvious applications. As for the new name, that one's pretty easy. The new name is the name of Jesus. It's clear in chapter 3 and also chapter 14. We'll get through those eventually. That it's the name of Jesus is written on you. 
you want to know who you are, if you want to know what you're about, what you mean, what your life means, the meaning of your life, the reason you exist is him. He's the one that he renames you after himself, right? So the application, I think, is obvious. To those who are truly his, he will give them himself. They will receive his righteousness, his admittance into heaven, into the party, into the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? That's how you get in. You got to have the stone with the name of Jesus on it, right? That's how you get in. We will receive a new name, a new identity. In Christ, we are new creations. That's what that means. When you became a Christian, you were remade, recreated, not in your own image, but in the perfect image of Christ and his righteousness. You are a new person. You got a stone with a new name on it, not your old name with its bad reputation and all that sin attached to it. You got a new name which cannot be smudged out, which is the name of Jesus, right? Whatever you used to be, you are no longer in Christ, period. So those that choose not to follow him and instead worship their chosen idols. Oh, I'd rather worship Baal. I'd rather do this or I'd rather be this. I'd rather choose my own identity. Thank you very much. Those who do that get the sword. Not just any old impersonal sword, but the sword out of the mouth of Jesus himself. That's bad news. <laughs> the good news is for those that are in Christ, get the stone with, your name, with his name written on it. So what's the word? What's the meaning of all this? It's just turn away from Balaam. <laughs> Why would you choose that? The way you resist sin, I've often said this, is, you, is not just to push against it because it's stronger than you. Your flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. It's it's, it's puny, it it's, doesn't give any resistance. It's just this, and any resistance it gives is just a lie. It's just like some kind of religious thing that's just about you. The way you resist sin is you look at Christ, right? As you get filled up with him, as you worship him, you turn your heart and your eyes to him. The guy with the sword out of his mouth and the flaming eyes who just, who just wants to put his hand on your shoulder and say, this is all good for you. I know you can't do this, but that's actually bad for you. That's just a lie. Every sin is a lie against the goodness of Christ. And he says, I'm the treasure. Wouldn't you rather have a new name? Wouldn't you rather have me? And wouldn't you like to come to the party forever? Then stop messing around with these Midianite women, Right? Stop listening to Balaam. He's an idiot. He's just a liar. He can't even see an angel when it's standing right in front of him. He can't see what his donkey sees. Don't listen to him. It's all a lie. So you look to Christ. You get filled up with Christ. You get your heart filled up with him, and you recognize that he is actually the prize and the treasure. That is how you resist sin. It's also how you come back from it. When you get caught, oh, there goes Balaam and his donkey. I think I'll follow him over this way. And then you get knocked on the head and you come back, oh, what do I do? You just come back to Jesus. And you hold out your stone with your name on it and say, hey, 
I just acted like a fool. But I got this stone. <laughs> and, and you didn't do that. I did that. And so I'm coming home, right? When you treasure Christ above all, you will see the temptations of this world as empty, meaningless trash, as lies. You ever wonder how Eve was so dumb to trade all that God had given her in the garden for an apple? I mean, I like apples, but really? If I had been writing, writing that story, I would have made the temptation more tempting. <laughs> more, oh, well, I understand. I mean, that was a tough call. She was really tempted. It was, it was bacon, not an apple. <laughs> right? I mean, that's not how God wrote the story. Because that's not the truth about us, is it? The truth about us is... We trade eternal glory constantly. That we trade the presence of Christ for stupid things all the time. It's our greatest weakness, I think, as we lose sight of Jesus so easily. And so this is the answer, I believe. Is the answer to this is not just trying really hard not to eat the apple. It's recognizing who Christ is and beholding him instead and being drunk, letting him satisfy you instead. It's one of the great roles of the Holy Spirit. He points to Jesus. what he does. It's why he's here. It's his reason for landing in Acts chapter 2. It was not just to make our meetings more exciting. It was to point to Jesus and say, behold Christ, look at him. Look what he's done. Look what he is doing. He's extending, as Lindsay Nagel read, not Lindsay Nagel, Lindsay Hubbard read this morning. He's extending his hand. She spoke my entire sermon this morning. Right out of Isaiah. He's extending his hand to you, and he wants to give you a new name. Isaiah spoke, prophesied it before John saw it. That's the truth. So I want to take a moment. Why don't we stand up together and just... Ask the Holy Spirit to realign our hearts, to refocus our vision, our sight onto Jesus. And then we're going to do that as we worship, okay? I want to say, too, to those, um, the other thing that was spoken this morning is right in line with this, too, which is bring Bring whatever's in your heart to Jesus, right? The, the good vibes and the bad ones. Your sin and your righteousness. Your filthy rags of righteousness. <laughs> and your sin, all of it. And if you're, we're going to have a minute after we worship for people to pray for you. Um, there's something about confession of sin that's really powerful because shame gets attached to it, right? And there's something about saying it out loud, Scripture says, confess your sins one to another, right? That's what we want to do. So if, you, if you're kind of walking around like, oh, I've been praying all morning and feeling really ashamed, like I'm really far from God and it's frustrating me, don't leave here carrying that. Come up.
talk to somebody. They're very trustworthy people. We don't let untrustworthy people pray for you up here, all right? It's kind of important to us. So come up and just say, hey, this is what I've been struggling with. This is where I've been living. I've been following Balaam and his donkey all week or for years maybe. And I'm trapped in this thing and just confess it. I say, this is what it is. And then just let somebody pray for you that you would feel that forgiveness and cleansing, okay? I just want to, and, and kind of come back to the feet of Christ, okay? So I want to put that out there as something I think probably some of you need to do to settle that issue in your heart. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to do what you love to do and what you've already been doing. Just to come and just redirect, refocus our hearts on Jesus, his glory. That we would see him both as our friend, but also as a righteous judge who is all powerful and all knowing and all seeing, perfect and holy in every way. that we would be enraptured by him and that we would see him extending his hand with a white stone and a new name. Holy Spirit, we ask you just to fill us with that vision right now. And Lord, I pray that as we worship, that it would be as if you appear right in our hearts all over again. We ask this in your name, amen.